The cause of the weakness of your Christian life is that you want to work it out partly and to let God help you. And that cannot be. You must come to be utterly helpless to let God work. He will work gloriously. It is this that we need if we are indeed to be workers for God. I could go through scripture and prove to you how Moses, when he led Israel out of Egypt, how Joshua, when he brought them into the land of Canaan, how all God's servants in the Old Testament counted on the omnipotence of God doing impossibilities. And this God lives today, and this God is the God of every child of his. And yet some of us want God to give us a little help where we do our best instead of coming to understand what God wants and to say, I can do nothing. God must and will do all. Have you said in worship, in work, in sanctification, in obedience to God, I can do nothing of myself and so my place is to worship God and to believe that He will work in me every moment. Oh, may God teach us this. Oh, that God would, by His grace, show you what a God you have and to what a God you have entrusted yourself, an omnipotent God. He is willing, with his whole omnipotence, to place himself at the disposal of every child of his. Will we not take the lesson of the Lord Jesus and say, Amen, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Remember what we have said about Peter, his self-confidence, self-power, self-will, and how he came to deny his Lord. You feel, ah, there is the self-life, there is the flesh life that rules in me, and now have you believed that there is deliverance from that? Have you believed that Almighty God is able to reveal Christ in your heart to let the Holy Spirit rule in you so that the self-life will not have power or dominion over you? Have you coupled the two together and with tears of penitence and with deep humiliation and feebleness cried out, O oh God, it is impossible to me. Man cannot do it, but glory to your name. It is possible with God. Have you claimed deliverance? Do it now. Put yourself afresh in absolute surrender into the hands of a God of infinite love. As infinite as his love is his power to do it. God works in man. But again we come to the question of absolute surrender and feel that that is lacking in the Church of Christ. That is why the Holy Spirit cannot fill us, and why we cannot live as people entirely separated unto the Holy Spirit. That is why the flesh and the self-life cannot be conquered. We have never understood what it is to be absolutely surrendered to God as Jesus was. 
I know that many earnestly and honestly say, Amen, I accept the message of absolute surrender to God, yet they think, Will that ever be mine? Can I count on God to make me one of whom it will be said in heaven, on earth, and in hell? He lives in absolute surrender to God. Brother, sister, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Do believe that when he takes charge of you in Christ. It is possible for God to make you a man of absolute surrender. And God is able to maintain that. He is able to let you rise from bed every morning of the week with that blessed thought, directly or indirectly. I am in God's charge. My God is working out my life for me. Some are weary of thinking about sanctification. You pray. You have longed and cried for it. And yet it appeared so far off. You are so conscious of how distant the holiness and humility of Jesus is. Beloved friends, the one doctrine of sanctification that is scriptural and real and effectual is the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. God can sanctify men. By His almighty and sanctifying power, God can keep them every moment. Oh, that we might get a step nearer to our God now. Oh, that the light of God might shine, and that we might know our God better. I could go on to speak about the life of Christ in us, living like Christ, taking Christ as our Savior from sin, and as our life and strength. It is God in heaven who can reveal that in you. What does that prayer of the Apostle Paul say? That he would grant you, according to riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. Ephesians 3.16 do you not see that it is an omnipotent God working by his omnipotence in the heart of his believing children so that Christ can become an indwelling Savior? You have tried to grasp it, understand it, and to believe it, and it would not come. It was because you had not been brought to believe that the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And so I trust that the words spoken about love may have brought many to see that we must have an inflowing of love in quite a new way. Our heart must be filled with life from above, from the fountain of everlasting love, if it is going to overflow all day then it will be just as natural for us to love our fellow men as it is natural for the lamb to be gentle and the wolf to be cruel. When I am brought to such a state that the more a man hates and speaks evil of me, the more unlikable and unlovable a man is, the more I will love him. When I am brought to such a state that the more obstacles, hatred, and ingratitude surround me, the more the power of love can triumph in me. 
until I am brought to see these, I am not saying it is impossible with men. But if you have been led to say, this message has spoken to me about a love utterly beyond my power, it is absolutely impossible. Then we can come to God and say, it is possible with you. Some are crying to God for a great revival. I can say that this is the unceasing prayer of my heart. Oh, if God would only revive his believing people. I cannot think of the unconverted formalists of the church or of the infidels and skeptics or of all the wretched and perishing around me without my heart pleading, My God, revive your church and people. It is not for a lack of reason that thousands of hearts yearn after holiness and consecration. It is a forerunner of God's power. God works to will, and then he works to do. These yearnings are a witness and a proof that God has worked to will. Oh, let us in faith believe that the omnipotent God will work to do among his people more than we can ask. Unto him, Paul said, that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Unto him be glory. Ephesians three twenty and 21. Let our hearts say that. Glory to God, the Omnipotent One, who can do above what we dare to ask or think. The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. All around you there is a world of sin and sorrow, and Satan is there. But remember, Christ is on the throne. Christ is stronger, Christ has conquered, and Christ will conquer. But wait on God. My text casts us down. The things which are impossible with men, but it ultimately lifts us up high, are possible with God. Get linked to God. Adore and trust Him as the Omnipotent One, not only for your own life, but for all the souls that are entrusted to you. Never pray without adoring His Omnipotence, saying, Mighty God, I claim Your Almightiness. And the answer to the prayer will come. Like Abraham, you will become strong in faith, giving glory to God, because you account Him who has promised, able to perform. O wretched man that I am! O wretched man that I am! Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans seven twenty four and 25. You know the wonderful location that this text has in the epistle to the Romans. It stands here at the end of the seventh chapter as the gateway into the eighth. In the first sixteen verses of the eighth chapter, the name of the Holy Spirit is found sixteen times. You have there the description and promise of the life that a child of God can live in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
This begins in the second verse. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8, 2. From that, Paul goes on to speak of the great privileges of the child of God, who is to be led by the Spirit of God. The gateway into all this is found at the end of chapter 7. O wretched man that I am. There you have the words of a man who has come to the end of himself. He has in the previous verses described how he had struggled and wrestled in his own power to obey the holy law of God and had failed. But in answer to his own questions, he now finds the true answer and cries out, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. From that he goes on to speak of what that deliverance is that he has found. I want from these words to describe the path by which a man can be led out of the spirit of bondage into the spirit of liberty. You know how distinctly it is said, Ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Romans 8.15 We are continually warned that this is the great danger of the Christian life, to go again into bondage. I want to describe the path by which a man can get out of bondage into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Rather, I want to describe the man himself. First, these words are the language of a regenerate man. Second, of a weak man. Third, of a wretched man. And fourth, of a man on the border of complete liberty. The regenerate man. There is much evidence of regeneration from the 14th verse of chapter 7 on to the 23rd verse. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Romans 7:17. 7, that is the language of a regenerate man. A man who knows that his heart and nature have been renewed, and that sin is now a power in him that is not himself. I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Romans 7:22. That again is the language of a regenerate man. He dares to say when he does evil, It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. It is of great importance to understand this. In the first two great sections of the epistle, Paul deals with justification and sanctification. In dealing with justification, he lays the foundation of the doctrine in the teaching about sin. He does not speak of the singular sin, but of the plural sins, the actual transgressions. In the second part of the fifth chapter, he begins to deal with sin, not as actual transgression, but as a power. Just imagine what a loss it would have been to us if we did not have this second half of the seventh chapter of the epistle to the Romans. If Paul had omitted in his teaching this vital question of the sinfulness of the believer... We should have missed the question we all want answered as to sin in the believer. 
What is the answer? The regenerate man is one in whom the will has been renewed, and who can say, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, the weak man. Here is the great mistake made by many Christian people. They think that when there is a renewed will, it is enough. But that is not the case. This regenerate man tells us, I will to do what is good, but the power to perform I find not. How often people tell us that if you set yourself determinedly, you can perform what you will. But this man was as determined as any man can be, and yet he made the confession, To will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Romans 7, 18. But you ask, how is it God makes a regenerate man utter such a confession? He being with a right will, with a heart that longs to do good and longs to do its very utmost to love God? Let us look at this question. What has God given us our will for? Had the angels who fell in their own will the strength to stand? Surely no. The will of man is nothing but an empty vessel in which the power of God is to be made manifest. Man must seek in God all that is to be. You have it in the second chapter of the epistle to the Philippians, and you have it here also, that God's work is to work in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Here is a man who appears to say, God has not worked to do in me. But we are taught that God works both to will and to do. How is the apparent contradiction to be reconciled? You will find that in this passage, Romans 7, 6 through 25. The name of the Holy Spirit does not occur once, nor does the name of Christ occur. The man is wrestling and struggling to fulfill God's law. Instead of the Holy Spirit and of Christ, the law is mentioned nearly 20 times. In this chapter, it shows a believer doing his very best to obey the law of God with his regenerate will. Not only this, but you will find the little words, I, me, my, occur more than 40 times. It is the regenerate eye in its weakness, seeking to obey the law without being filled with the Spirit. This is the experience of almost every saint. After conversion, a man begins to do his best, and he fails. But if we are brought into the full light, we no longer need to fail. Nor need we fail at all if we have received the Spirit in His fullness at conversion. God allows that failure so that the regenerate man should be taught his own utter inability. It is in the course of this struggle that the sense of our utter sinfulness comes to us. It is God's way of dealing with us. He allows man to strive to fulfill the law so that as he strives and wrestles, he may be brought to this. I am a regenerate child of God, but I am utterly helpless 
to obey his law. See what strong words are used all through the chapter to describe this condition. I am carnal, sold under sin. Romans 7:14. I see another law in my members, bringing me into captivity. Romans 7:23. And last of all, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Romans 7:24. This believer who bows here in deep contrition is utterly unable to obey the law of God. The wretched man. Not only is the man who makes this confession a regenerate and a weak man, but he is also a wretched man. He is utterly unhappy and miserable. What is it that makes him so utterly miserable? It is because God has given him a nature that loves God. He is deeply wretched because he feels he is not obeying his God. He says with brokenness of heart, It is not I that do it, but I am under the awful power of sin which is holding me down. It is I, and yet not I. Alas, alas, it is myself. So closely am I bound up with it, and so closely is it intertwined with my very nature. Blessed be God when a man learns to say, O wretched man that I am, from the depth of his heart, he is on the way to the eighth chapter of Romans. There are many who make this confession a pillow for sin. They say that if Paul had to confess his weakness and helplessness in this way, who are they that they should try to do better? So the call to holiness is quietly set aside. Pray God that every one of us would learn to say these words in the very spirit in which they are written here. When we hear sin spoken of as the abominable thing that God hates, do not many of us wince before the word? If only all Christians who go on sinning and sinning would take this verse to heart. If ever you utter a sharp word, say, O oh, wretched man that I am. And every time you lose your temper, kneel down and understand that God never meant his child to remain in this state. If only we would take this word into our daily life and say it every time we are touched about our own honor. If only we would take it into our hearts every time we say sharp things and every time we sin against the Lord God and against the Lord Jesus Christ in His humility and in His obedience and in His self-sacrifice. Pray, God, that we could forget everything else and cry out, O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Why should you say this whenever you commit sin? Because it is when a man is brought to this confession that deliverance is at hand. And remember, it was not only the sense of being weak 
and taken captive that made him wretched, it was above all the sense of sinning against his God. The law was doing its work, making sin exceedingly sinful in his sight. The thought of continually grieving God became utterly unbearable. It was this that brought forth the piercing cry, O wretched man! As long as we talk and reason about our inability and our failure, and only try to find out what Romans chapter 7 means, it will profit us little. But once every sin gives new intensity to the sense of wretchedness, and we feel our whole state as one of not only helplessness, but actual exceeding sinfulness, we will be pressed not only to ask who shall deliver us, but to cry, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. The almost delivered man. The man has tried to obey the beautiful law of God. He has loved it. He has wept over his sin, and he has tried to conquer. He has tried to overcome fault after fault, but every time he has ended in failure. What did he mean by the body of this death? Did he mean my body when I die? Surely not. In the 8th chapter, you have the answer to this question in the words, If ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Romans 8:13. That is the body of death from which he is seeking deliverance. And now he is on the brink of deliverance. In the 23rd verse of the 7th chapter, we have the words, I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. It is a captive that cries, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He is a man who feels himself bound. But look to the contrast in the second verse of the eighth chapter. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. That is the deliverance through Jesus Christ our Lord, the liberty to the captive which the spirit brings. Can you keep captive any longer a man made free by the law of the spirit of life? life in Christ Jesus? But you say, the regenerate man did not have the spirit of Jesus when he spoke in the sixth chapter. Yes, he did not know what the Holy Spirit could do for him. God does not work by his spirit as he works by a blind force in nature. He leads his people on as a reasonable, intelligent being. Therefore, when he wants to give us that Holy Spirit whom he has promised, he first brings us to the end of self. He brings us to the conviction that though we have been striving to obey the law, we have failed. When we have come to the end of that, then he shows us that in the Holy Spirit we have the power of obedience, the power of victory, and the power of real holiness. God works to will. 
and he is ready to work, to do. But many Christians misunderstand this. They think because they have the will, it is enough, and that now they are able to do. This is not so. The new will is a permanent gift, an attribute of the new nature. The power to do is not a permanent gift, but must be received each moment from the Holy Spirit. It is the man who is conscious of his own weakness as a believer, who will learn that by the Holy Spirit he can live a holy life. This man is on the brink of that great deliverance. The way has been prepared for the glorious eighth chapter. I now ask the solemn question, Where are you living? With you, is it? O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? With now and then a little experience of the power of the Holy Spirit? Or is it, I thank God through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit has set me free from the law of sin and of death. What the Holy Spirit does is to give the victory. If ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Romans 8.13 It is the Holy Spirit who does this, the third person of the Godhead. It is He who, when the heart is opened wide to receive Him, comes in and reigns there and mortifies the deeds of the body day by day, hour by hour, and moment by moment. I want to bring this to a point. Remember, dear friend, what we need is to come to decision and action. There are in Scripture two very different sorts of Christians. The Bible speaks in Romans, Corinthians, and Galatians about yielding to the flesh. And that is the life of tens of thousands of believers. All their lack of joy in the Holy Spirit and their lack of the liberty He gives is just owing to the flesh. The Spirit is within them, but the flesh rules the life. To be led by the Spirit of God is what they need. If only I could make every child of His realize what it means that the everlasting God has given His dear Son, Christ Jesus, to watch over you every day, and that what you have to do is to trust. If only I could make his children understand that the work of the Holy Spirit is to enable you every moment to remember Jesus and to trust him. The Spirit has come to keep the link with him unbroken every moment. Praise God for the Holy Spirit. We are so accustomed to thinking of the Holy Spirit as a luxury for special times or for special ministers and men. But the Holy Spirit is necessary for every believer every moment of the day. Praise God you have Him and that He gives you the full experience of the deliverance in Christ as he makes you free from the power of sin. Who longs to have the power and the liberty of the Holy Spirit? Oh, brother, bow before God in one final cry of despair. Oh, God, must I go on sinning this way forever? Who shall deliver me, oh, wretched man that I am, from the body 
of death. Are you ready to sink before God in that cry and seek the power of Jesus to live and work in you? Are you ready to say, I thank God through Jesus Christ? What good does it do that we go to church or attend conventions, that we study our Bibles and pray, unless our lives are filled with the Holy Spirit? That is what God wants. Nothing else will enable us to live a life of power and peace. When a minister or parent is using the catechism and a question is asked, an answer is expected. How sad that many Christians are content with the question put here, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death, but never gives the answer. Instead of answering, they are silent. Instead of saying, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, they are forever repeating the question without the answer. If you want the path to the full deliverance of Christ and the liberty of the Spirit, the glorious liberty of the children of God, take it through the seventh chapter of Romans. Then say, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do not be content to remain ever groaning, but say, I, a wretched man, thank God through Jesus Christ. Even though I do not see it all, I am going to praise God. Here is deliverance. There is the liberty of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14:17. Having begun in the Spirit. The words from which I wish to address you, you will find in the epistle to the Galatians, the third chapter, the second and third verses. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish? And then comes my text. Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? When we speak of the quickening or the deepening or the strengthening of the spiritual life, we are thinking of something that is feeble and wrong and sinful. It is a great thing to take our place before God with the confession, O oh God, our spiritual life is not what it should be. May God work that in your heart, reader. As we look around at the church, we see so many indications of feebleness, failure, sin, and shortcoming. They compel us to ask, why is it? Is there any necessity for the church of Christ to be living in such a low state? Or is it actually possible that God's people should be living always in the joy and strength of their God? Every believing heart must answer, it is possible. Then comes the great question. Why is it? How is it to be accounted for that God's church as a whole is so feeble and that the great majority of Christians are not living up to their privileges? 
There must be a reason for it. Has God not given Christ, his almighty Son, to be the keeper of every believer, to make Christ an ever-present reality, and to impart and communicate to us all that we have in Christ? God has given his Son, and God has given his Spirit. How is it that believers do not live up to their privileges? In more than one of the epistles, we find a very solemn answer to that question. There are epistles, such as the first to the Thessalonians, where Paul writes to the Christians, in effect, I want you to grow, to abound, to increase more and more. They were young, and there were things lacking in their faith. But their state was so far satisfactory, gave him such great joy, that he writes time after time, I pray God that you may abound more and more. I write to you to increase more and more. First Thessalonians 4, 1 and 10. But there are other epistles where he takes a very different tone, especially the epistle to the Corinthians and to the Galatians. And he tells them in many different ways what the one reason was that they were not living as Christians ought to live. Many were under the power of the flesh. My text is one example. He reminds them that by the preaching of faith, they had received the Holy Spirit. He had preached Christ to them. They had accepted that Christ and had received the Holy Spirit in power. But what happened? Having begun in the Spirit, they tried to perfect the work that the Spirit had begun in the flesh by their own effort. We find the same teaching in the epistle to the Corinthians. Now we have here a solemn discovery of what the great need is in the Church of Christ. God has called the Church of Christ to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. But the Church is living, for the most part, in the power of human flesh and of will and energy and effort apart from the Spirit of God. I do not doubt that this is the case with many individual believers. And oh, if God will use me to give you a message from Him, my one message will be this. If the church will return to acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is her strength and her help, and if the church will return to give up everything and wait on God to be filled with the Spirit, her days of beauty and gladness will return. We will see the glory of God revealed among us. This is my message to every individual believer. Nothing will help you unless you come to understand that you must live every day under the power of the Holy Spirit. God wants you to be a living vessel in whom the power of the Spirit is to be manifested every hour and every moment of your life. God will enable you to be that. Now, let us try to learn what this word to the Galatians teaches us. Some very simple thoughts. 
It shows us how, one, the beginning of the Christian life is receiving the Holy Spirit. It shows us, two, what great danger there is of forgetting that we are to live by the Spirit and not live after the flesh. It shows us, three, what are the fruits and the proofs of our seeking perfection in the flesh. And then it suggests to us, four, the way of deliverance from this state. Receiving the Holy Spirit. First of all, Paul says, having begun in the Spirit. Remember, the Apostle not only preached justification by faith, but he preached something more. He preached this. The epistle is full of it, that justified men cannot live except by the Holy Spirit, and that therefore God gives to every justified man the Holy Spirit to seal him. The Apostle says to them, in effect, more than once, How did you receive the Holy Spirit? Was it by the preaching of the law or by the preaching of faith? He could point back to that time when there had been a mighty revival under his teaching. The power of God had been manifested and the Galatians were compelled to confess, Yes, we have got the Holy Spirit. Accepting Christ by faith, by faith we received the Holy Spirit. Now, it is to be feared that there are many Christians who hardly know that when they believed, they received the Holy Spirit. A great many Christians can say, I received a pardon and I received peace. But if you were to ask them, have you received the Holy Spirit? They would hesitate. And many, if they were to say yes, would say it with hesitation. They would tell you that they hardly know what it is since that time to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us try to take hold of this great truth. The beginning of the true Christian life is to receive the Holy Spirit. And the work of every Christian minister is that which was the work of Paul. To remind his people that they received the Holy Spirit and must live according to his guidance and in his power. If those Galatians who received the Holy Spirit in power were tempted to go astray by that terrible danger of perfecting in the flesh what had been begun in the Spirit, how much more danger do those Christians run who hardly ever know that they have received the Holy Spirit? How much more danger is there for those who, if they know it as a matter of belief, hardly ever think of the gift of the Holy Spirit and hardly ever praise God for it? This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail 
at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.